The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, I'd like you to take your Bibles now, if you would, please, and open them to the epistle of 1 Timothy, chapter 2. And our text verses this evening will be the same as what we had last week for the message, and that's verses 1 through 4 in the second chapter. And the subject that we're on is living for Jesus in communication. God has ways of communicating with us. He communicates with us through his word. Uh, In fact, his word is the instruction manual for how we know to do things that are pleasing to God. The Word actually tells us how that we can live in a way that God approves. Uh, A few weeks ago, Jared um, sent me a a message about Catholic apologetics, and he he said, I I need you to read this. I want you to see this. And, And this is what the text message said. It said, question, why do Catholics baptize infants? Where is that in the Bible? Answer, firstly, when Catholics are asked to show where in the Bible a particular teaching is, the first thing a Catholic should ask is, could you please show me where in the Bible it says that all Christian beliefs must be found there? Now, I hope that you know the answer to that. Second Timothy Uh, Chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says that all Scripture has been given by inspiration of God. But it also says that the Scriptures are perfect. They, They thoroughly furnish us unto all good works. And so if the Scriptures tell us that we can find everything that furnishes us to good works, how to live Christian lives and so forth, and the Scriptures are totally sufficient, then... Where else would we expect that Christian beliefs would be found? The Bible is actually its own testimony to its exclusivity. And that's very important to our subject tonight because not only does God communicate to us or with us through his word, but he also communicates with us through prayer. And we reciprocate that communication in prayer, so prayer is actually a two-way communication. But we need to understand this, that God never communicates anything to us in prayer that's beyond the written word. God is not going to give us any new revelation in our prayers. And that's actually one of the great heresies of the Pentecostal movement. Uh, They don't believe that God's word is capped. Or in other words, that there aren't uh, other ways and things that God's going to reveal to us or say to us rather than simply what's in his word. But God doesn't need to communicate to us any new truth because he's already given us everything that's fully sufficient for us to know. And so Pentecostalism would really not be any better than Catholicism in that area because uh, according to the Pentecostals, if we accept what they say, that is, uh, we could just as well believe the Pope, we could just as well believe the Roman Catholic Church, that there are other sources for Christian doctrine other than the Bible itself. So you have Pentecostals that um, believe their experience is actually, well, they'll believe that more than they will the Bible itself, some experience that they've had. Well, going on here to our text verses in 1 Timothy, Paul says here in verse number 1, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, For kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. 
For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come under the knowledge of the truth. Now, what we're not doing right now is giving you the context of why Paul says these particular things. Why is he talking about prayer in this particular scripture? I'm actually going to save that for the last message in this particular mini-series that we're doing on prayer. We'll talk about it then. But right now, we're, we're simply talking about the idea that God does communicate with us in prayer. Uh, and we communicate with him. Now, last week we talked about the importance of prayer in the area of that prayer is important for our forgiveness that we are cleansed from our, from our sins, from our daily sins in confession. And confession is actually one form of prayer that Jesus taught in the model prayer. Secondly, we talked about how prayer is for peace, that God settles our hearts through prayer. Prayer is about learning that God is the one that's in control and that God is a dependable help for us. And so when we know that, then we can have confidence in Him. We know that God has the ability to help us, and we know that God will do that because He is the all-wise God who, who always does what's best for His children. Thirdly, we talked about how prayer is important for strength, how Satan continually bombards us with temptation, that the world lies in wickedness, temptations are flying at us from every direction, and the devil uses the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Those are always his tools that he uses uh, against us as God's people, and we're not able to handle that temptation alone. None of us is. Even Jesus had to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit when he was in his temptations, and if Jesus had to be had to be strengthened, you can be sure that you and I do. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul listed the pieces of the Christian armor, things such as faith and truth and righteousness, the gospel, the word. And then he topped that section off by saying that prayer, pray always with, with uh, uh, praying always with prayer and supplication in the Spirit. So in effect, what he did was to emphasize the very thing, same things that we're reading here in 1 Timothy chapter 2. So he says in that 6th chapter in verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. So these are all reasons that show us how vital that prayer is and that you're, you are never going to be able to overcome the rigors, the hardships of Christian living without prayer. Prayer is a, a great resource that we have for power with God. But we also learned in the last lesson that prayer requires instruction. And if prayer is such a vital part of the Christian's life, we have to be sure that we do pray in the right way. Now, when, the, when the disciples heard Jesus pray... They recognized that there was something very different the way that he prayed. And their, their religious training had never equipped them, never equipped them to, to pray in the way that Jesus prayed with the same power that he had. They had never learned to approach the Father intimately. You know, that's one thing that we're going to look at as we're studying in Matthew chapter 27 in these next uh, few weeks on, on the crucifixion, how that Jesus, when he hung on the cross, that he did a very unusual thing, and that is he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he didn't use the word Father, because Father is the word that Jesus almost always used, almost without exception. Whenever he talked to God, he always called him his Father. Well... The Jews had never learned that. The disciples never learned that, how that you can actually come to the Father intimately. 
And Jesus was very specific about his petitions. There, there was order to his prayers. His prayers were different. And so the disciples asked him to teach them how to pray. And his method of teaching them was a model prayer. And then also personal examples that included all the elements of what prayer should be. How that we should pray. So in these lessons, what we're doing here is lifting out some of these things are, that the Bible teaches that help us to pray, to pray in the right way. So we started last week with that first point on your outline, which is practicing the essentials. Practicing the essentials. And the first one is one that's not actually on the lesson sheet, that I told you that one of the chief prerequisites of prayer is that it requires Christianity. Now, as far as I know, all the religions in the world practice prayer in some form or another. And I know it isn't politically correct to say this, um, but though many practice prayer, they do it in futility. They do it because prayer is useless for anyone that is not a Christian. Now, Jesus was very exclusive about this. He said, no one comes to the Father except through him. And so he excluded anyone that doesn't believe in him. He, he, it, the Bible says that he's the only mediator between God and men. And that's stated right here in the fifth verse of the same chapter that we just read. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Now, we can either accept that word as being the truth or we have to deny Christianity itself as being a true religion because Christianity is absolutely exclusive of all other religions. And that doesn't matter what the Pope says and it doesn't matter what presidents say. Christianity is exclusive. And when I say that, I'm not doing anything other than saying exactly what Jesus said. When he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no one that comes to the Father but by me. And so true Christianity, the one where the person trusts Christ and him alone, that's a prerequisite for prayer. So we have to get that first. We've got to get that out of the way first, that if you're going to pray, you better be a Christian. You better be a born-again Christian who knows uh, God the Father, knows Jesus Christ as your Savior. And once we know that, then we're ready to communicate with God. Now, we only looked at uh, one of these last week, um, one on the list, and it goes on here even beyond what we have tonight. But the first one that we looked at was credulity. And credulity simply means trust. Credulity is faith in what God can do. The Bible says that we have to pray without a doubtful heart. Jesus taught the disciples, All things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing ye shall receive. And I accept that not only as a promise from God, but I also ex accept that as a command from Him. That prayer in faith is absolutely required because to pray to God in any other way is actually an insult to Him. You can't expect to get things from God if you're going to insult Him by thinking, believing, doubting that He actually has the power to do what you ask Him. Now, we are to pray expecting that God will fulfill his promise that he will hear his children. And he always hears a prayer of faith. Now, it may not get answered in the way that you expect, but God always hears his children when they pray, and they pray in faith. Well, that's just a brief summary of things that we talked about last week. So now we're going to move on, and we're going to talk about this next essential in our text. And so secondly is humility. That when we pray, we have to pray with humility. Because of Christ's death, God 
has given you the right to speak with him. I'll put it to you simply. You had no right ever to ask God for anything because you were an unholy, depraved sinner. You hated God. You were hostile towards him. You had no right to ask anything from God because you never did anything but despise him and the sacrifice of his son. I know people deny that. They say, well, I never lived that way. You know, I've always liked God. Always liked God. Well, the Bible says otherwise. The Bible says we've always hated God. And so that means we never had a right to come to him and ask him for anything. And you see, that's the position of every person that's without Christ. That's why we say that you cannot pray to God unless you believe in Christ. Because that would be absolutely the height of arrogant assumption, presumption rather, to approach God with anything less than a person, uh, being a person who has submitted his entire life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, a person that has never submitted to God is not humble. He's intrusive when he comes to God. He doesn't understand that prayer is a, is a privilege that's been granted by an almighty sovereign God. Now, you remember Moses, the great prophet of God. When he came into God's presence, God said, Don't come close. Take off your shoes. The place where you stand is holy ground. And do you know that's God's way of saying, Respect my presence. You come here only at my good pleasure. Walk softly and come humbly before your God. So prayer is a privilege that God grants. He gives it as, as, as a right that he gives because of the gift of Jesus Christ. So respect the gift and, and understand that you have been awarded an audience with God. It comes at his good pleasure. Now, one of the greatest examples of humility in prayer is the story that's told by Jesus in Luke chapter 18. So let's turn there, if you would, to this passage, and, and this is uh, a familiar story. And it gives you an idea of the, of the kind of prayers that the disciples had been taught before they met Jesus Christ. Now, here you have a prayer by a Pharisee and by a publican. And the Pharisee's prayer is typical. That's a typical example of the way that the disciples would have prayed because all of these people were like this. In Luke 18, in verse number 9, And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week, I give tithes of all that I possess, and the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner." I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For every one that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Now, what is the problem with the Pharisee's prayer? His problem is he was true to his roots. He was a self-righteous person. He was, he was haughty. And instead of glorifying God because of the grace that was bestowed upon him, what he wanted to do was to list the things that he had done for God. And so he wasn't praying on the basis of God's goodness and the good things that God had given, but he's praying on the basis of what he did, of his, of his own goodness. So in, in essence, he said, God, you need to listen to me because I'm worth listening to. And that's, that's the reason he says, God, listen to me. Look what I've done. Now, Peter has a great retort for that 
uh, for that type of individual. He said, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Now, do I need to remind you of those seven abominations that are found in Proverbs chapter 6, where it says, These six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven are abomination unto him, a proud look. And then you see the rest of the list there. Now, how would you, how would you ever expect that God would hear a prayer like the Pharisees' prayer when a proud look is at the top of the list of things that God hates? Could you ever expect that you could come into the presence of God with a proud attitude and God would hear you. Now this second man though, he came the way that God expects. God be merciful to me, a sinner. God, I'm nothing. God, listen to me. Not because of what I am and who, what I've done, but God, listen to me because of your mercy and grace. Entertain what I have to say to you because of your grace. And so what the publican did was he hit on the right essential for communication. That you can't come to God and make demands of Him. We come to Him with our heads bowed low. We come without, with a feeling that we're not even worthy enough to lift up our eyes to heaven. That we have an audience with God only because God grants it through the gift of Jesus Christ. I think that's a sobering thought that... Any attempt to approach God without Jesus Christ is nothing short of blasphemy. I mean, that's to say that you're worthy to come into the presence of God on the basis of who you are. And that is the height of arrogance. That's why God doesn't hear the prayers of those who don't know Christ. And it's also sobering to think, if it wasn't for the grace of God, that all of us here would be in a soup kitchen somewhere. If it wasn't for the grace of God, we'd be drunk in a gutter somewhere. And, and if, if, if you have been in that place, or maybe somebody is, you know, here in that place now, you can't afford food to put on the table, I don't know, but it's still by the grace of God that you're even able to be in God's house tonight. Only God gives you uh, the, that, that wonderful grace of His that enables you to do what you do. Now, pride, that, that is the very hardest thing that we have to give up. Most likely, that's the root of sin, now, many people are not saved, and, and I would say, well, all people that aren't saved have refused to humble themselves before God. But Christianity demands that. You have to be willing to do what Christ did. Living for Jesus is living the way that Jesus lived. And how was that? Well, he waited on exaltation. He, he waited on it. He was willing to be cast down. He was, he was willing to take the lowest position. He was willing to take the greatest humiliation and to go to the death of the cross. He knew exaltation would come later. Now, if God demanded that of his own son to step down, then what makes you think that God's not going to demand that of you? Are you better than Christ? Well, we know the answer to that. So Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves to the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. And you notice how that starts? A truly humble person is a submissive person. I mean, generally, this is the way he lives his life. It is a submissive life. He acts like Christ by stepping down to take a lower place. He subjects himself to other Christians. And that's the same that's taught by Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verse number 3, where he said that 
we are to esteem others better than ourselves. And do you understand that that's one of the reasons why that people hate the Bible so much? I mean, where, where did you ever hear anybody teach that greatness is allowing yourself to be stepped on? Where were you ever told that you're to do anything other than to fight for your rights? Don't, don't let anybody step on you. Don't take anything off of anybody. Don't let anybody stand in your way. Be true to yourself. Find yourself. Whatever it is that you want to be, you be that. That's, that's what you need to do. And the Bible teaches exactly the opposite of that. Lose yourself is what the Bible says. The Bible says, take cursing, take the bitterness, take the abuse, and then turn around and help your enemies that did it. And be true to God. Lose yourself in God's ways. And His way is the way of Christ. Be subject to others. Be clothed in humility. Humble yourselves. And Scripture says in due time, God will lift you up. Now with that in mind, do you think that, that God's going to hear a prayer when you come to Him with a proud, demanding attitude? Now let me also mention this, that that, that you have to be prepared. You, you have to come before God prepared. Your life has to be prepared. You can never pretend with God. See, what, what you can never do, you can't come to God like a lowly tax collector when your life says that you're a proud Pharisee. You can't do that. Do you understand? God, God sees below the surface. God knows what's in a person's heart. If you're the kind of person that has to have your way, and you look down on people who get in the way, and you look down on them because you think, oh, I'm so much holier than they are, look what I do, then you might as well forget about praying, because God resists the proud. A few months ago, there was a person, someone asked me um, if it was okay on Wednesday nights if they came to church in their work clothes. And that was a question um, that was asked because... This person was, was very sensitive about offending others. And it was really a question that was asked in sincerity. It was a question asked with the right attitude. But more often than not, what we find is people come and they say, well, I don't care what anybody thinks about it. I, I don't really care. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. That wasn't this person's attitude. What she wanted to know was, was what does God expect? What can I wear to church that wouldn't be offensive to others? Now, that's a great attitude. That's the right attitude. But I wasn't so much concerned about what she had to wear to church, whether it's her work clothes. I'm more concerned about a person who has the wrong attitude, another member who would look down on someone because they didn't get home in time to put on a suit and a tie and a frilly dress and dress all up to come to the church. Now, I, I'm more concerned about that kind of attitude because those kinds of complainers don't make much of an effort themselves to get into God's house. That's a totally wrong attitude that a person ought to have. God resists the proud. You see, when, when they call, God hangs up on them. He's not interested in listening to the proud. So we have to come with the attitude, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And this might be the problem, why your prayers get stuck beneath the ceiling and don't get any higher. There's not enough humility. You don't come to God with a life that's evident in your daily living that you are a person that is humble before God. You see, if your humility is something that you have to tell others about, you've got a serious problem. C.H. Spurgeon said, I'm certain that the safest way to defend your character is never to say a word about it. 
So credulity and humility, those are essentials for prayer. Well, thirdly is harmony. Prayers have to be in harmony with God. Now, because of our sinful nature, all of the areas that we'll talk about here, that last week, this week, and the coming weeks, all of these areas are going to be deficient. Because of the human nature, all of it's going to be deficient. So we need God's grace. We need grace for faith, and we need grace for humility. We need grace for harmony. Hebrews says that we are to come boldly to the throne of grace in order to obtain what? Grace to help in time of need. Now, you notice that it says we are to come boldly, but we ought not to understand the meaning of that. That doesn't mean that we can barge in on God. It means that we can come with confidence, but not confidence in what we are and what we do, but confidence in what Christ has done for us. That's what makes us worthy to come into God's presence. And so most certainly what we need, we need to come boldly before the throne of grace to find this grace to help in time of need. And our first need in prayer is how do we ever talk to God? How do we ever know what to ask God for when the human nature is always asserting itself? When it's, it's how are we going to harmonize with God when the sinful nature is always pushing us toward us? Always pushing towards what we want rather than what God wants for us. Now, here's the problem. The old nature is hard to deal with in prayer. So, how do we know when we're praying in God's will? Well, we need the instructions. Harmony is essential for answered prayer. 1 John 5.14 says, and this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. That's a pretty clear statement, isn't it? We have to be in harmony with God's will. When we're praying in God's will, that's when he hears. So I think the first thing that you would need to know when you pray is where do I find God's will? How, how do I know how to harmonize with God's will? Where is it found? And I'll tell you that most often God's will is found in his word. And I don't mean that 52% of the time, most often, it's found in His Word. I mean that 98, 99% of the time, God's will is found in His Word. And if you are not acquainted with God's Word, you're going to have a hard time praying in God's will. But I need to add this as well. You know, I run across this all the time, that you have young Christians, new Christians, and uh, that doesn't mean that... A new Christian can't pray because he hasn't learned all things that are in the Word of God. They haven't learned very much. You see, you don't really have to worry about this thing from that perspective because when you're saved, what God does is give you a new nature. And there are things that you know just because God has renewed the mind. I mean, there are many things that are in God's will that don't require a lot of extensive explanation. The Holy Spirit has come to live in you. He pokes you when you step in the wrong direction. Some things you know simply because that's the Holy Spirit's conviction on your heart. Now, for example, do I need to explain to a new convert that, you know what you really need to do? You need to stop going out on your wife. Do I have to explain to a new convert that, well, you ought to stop, stop smoking pot. You, you, you ought to stop stealing from your employer. You need to quit that nasty language. I don't have to explain those kinds of things. And it's really strange that those things are practiced by many Christians that have been saved for a long time. New Christians know better than that. 
Well, well, how does that work? Well, the old ones have been around long enough to get hard, long enough to be resistant to the Holy Spirit. But the truth is, you don't have to read 200 chapters in the Bible to know that some things are just wrong. Now, we do know this. You can't defy God and get from God. You can't pray outside of His will and get from God. I'll give you an example. A person that's thinking about marriage should never choose a date to date a person that isn't saved. Now, what do you expect that you're going to hear from God when you pray to Him and you say, Well, God, is this the person for me? Is this boy or this girl the one that you have for me? They're not saved, but couldn't they be the one for me? You don't need to pray about that. God, God's already told you the answer to that. And the answer is, an unsaved person is never in harmony with God's will. Now, there was a person that said this to me the other day. They said, uh, I've been praying for a job. And I finally found a job, but it's going to keep me out of church on Sunday. Now, since the job is available, and I need a job, and I've been praying about a job, and this one's available, should I take that job? Is that God's will? The answer is, no, that's not God's will. And you say, well, why not? Well, I could put it to you this way. Jesus could not say, forsake everything and follow me. He can't say, leave your houses, leave your lands, leave your family, leave everything behind, and then turn around at the same time and say, it's my will for you to give up church and take the job. That doesn't make any sense at all. God is not a schizoid God. I mean, he, he, doesn't make, he doesn't say those kinds of things. But very often when we pray, what we do is we put what we want in front of what God wants. And when you do that, you're answering your own prayer. So why in the world do you bother to pray to God if you're going to answer your own prayer? We can't put what we want in front of what God wants. James says it succinctly. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your lust. And so when you put what you want in front of what God wants, you consume it upon your lust. Do you understand that? you understand what he means here? I mean, there are some things that you ought not to have because they're going to be used for purposes that do not harmonize with God's will. Harmony is being in God's will, and dis disharmony is when you pray for things that are going to harm your Christianity, not help it. And so you just have to ask, I mean, does... Tell me, how, how is marrying an unsaved person, how, how can that possibly help your Christian life? How can getting a job in the wrong industry or taking a job that takes you out of the service of the Lord, how can that possibly help your Christian life? I mean, you ask any Christian that's been stuck in a position like this where they're not serving God, and you ask them, well, tell me something. Is your relationship with Christ better or is it worse? There's a no, that's a no-brainer. We, we, we need instruction on these kinds of things because what Satan does with this, he twists all this stuff up and he makes wrong seem right and right seem wrong. So an essential for prayer is that you're not obstinate about doing what you know to be right. And I know that there are some things that can be confusing at times, but really most answers are very clear and they don't come with shades of gray, that you know what to do, you know what's right. Well, I want to make just a few more comments in this area, and we're going to be done for tonight. Uh, we have other things to talk about uh, in these other lessons, other essentials. I don't want to start the next one because I want to spend some time with it. 
Uh, but there are there are answers to these questions about prayer. I mean, I think it's fair to to ask a question like this: that if it's God's will to never give me anything outside of His will, then why do I need to pray? And there are a few answers for that. Our our human nature and Satan's influence will often cause us to confuse God's will. You take the job scenario that I just mentioned. You really need a job. Maybe you've been searching one for a long, long time. Finally, there's an opening. But you know the job's not ideal, and you know that if you take it, you're going to have to compromise. And so you begin to rationalize this. Oh, I've been praying for this a long time. I need a job, and there it is. So it must be okay with God. Oh, you have to remember that Satan places ads in the New Pace newspaper too. Monster.com has some of Satan's ads on there. And you answer those, you're going to be in trouble. So you need to pray that God will help you to, to beat the temptation and be discerning about things that you need. You see, you are never going to be an exception to God's revealed will. You're never going to be God's exception. And I know that there's none of us that's immune to saying, well, you know, I know the Bible says that, and I know that the pastor taught this, but... And that's the big trouble, as I've told you before, the big butt gets in our way, our big butt gets in our way, and, and we have trouble. We, uh, we harmonize with God only when we understand that God is smart enough that he doesn't need to make plans that have to have exceptions to them. So prayer straightens out your thinking. That's why you need to pray. Humble yourself before God. Accept the answer that God gives without thinking you know more than him. Harmonize with his will. Don't resist it. Another reason that you need to pray is, well, simply because God commands it. If there wasn't another reason, his command's good enough. I mean, if you don't understand what God's doing, we need to obey him. He says to, and we're to do that. That's part of submission. That's part of humility. God, you told me to do it, so I'll do it. That would be reason enough. But the thing is, God doesn't leave us with those kinds of things. You know, he doesn't often say, just do it, and I'm not going to tell you why. That you don't really need to know the reasons. Just do what I'm telling you. No, he generally gives us reasons and helps us to understand why he does what he does. Now, one of the things that prayer does is that it aligns you with God's will. We're not always aligned with God's will. We don't always start out that way. We want to go a different direction. But if we're humble about things and we earnestly pray to God and we seek God's will, then what God will do is dissolve the differences that we have with him. You remember what that says in the golden chain of salvation in Romans 8, 29 and 30, where it says that you have been, you have been predestined to be conformed to God's will? Now, the Holy Spirit, then, is going to bring you into conformity with God's will, and prayer is one of God's means of doing that. Living for Jesus is walking with Jesus. And when you're walking with Jesus, that means you're going in the same direction that God is going. The will of God is the very same thing as the direction of God. And what prayer does, it puts you in the right path, walking the way that Jesus walks. Now, very closely related to that is another reason to pray, even though we know that God's going to do what God's going to do. Now, God's will is going to be done for sure. We know that, but God has a means of doing things. Now, that's a word that you need to write down. Write down means, because God always works through means. The means 
is the vehicle that God uses to accomplish his, to accomplish his purposes, and prayer is one of those vehicles that God uses. I think one of the best examples of this, when we think about how does God use means, how does God use vehicles to do what he wants done, is with the preaching of the gospel. And, you know, many times, um, because of our belief in predestination, we're often accused of being fatalist. That's a terribly inaccurate accusation that's false because fatalism is randomness. Fatalism assumes that there is no purpose or a plan. It happens just because it happens. We never accept fatalism. But we do accept this, that God is sovereign and that God, by his nature, has to act out of a plan that perfectly accords with his will. And we know this, that both God and man cannot be sovereign in salvation. And once you accept the, the, the true meaning of sovereign, then you understand that nothing is ever going to happen, that God does not decide is going to happen. And so if a person goes to hell, God's sovereign. And if a person goes to heaven, God is sovereign. There aren't any contingencies that are beyond the control of God in those, in those areas or any other. I mean, there, there's absolutely nothing. I don't think it's taught more clearly in Scripture than this, that God is sovereign in everything that he does. So there are no contingencies that are outside God's control. So those who misunderstand sovereignty and they can't figure out, well, how, how in the world are you going to harmonize that with the free offer of the gospel? How, how are you going to give people the, the free offer of the gospel when you say that God's in control of whether believe, people believe or they don't believe? Well, so they say, well, they, the thing is then, that must mean there's no reason to witness to anybody. We don't really need to witness to anybody because whoever's going to be saved is going to be saved no matter what we believe. And if we thought that, we would be fatalist of some sort. But what these people don't really understand is that God has a plan for getting us from point A to point B. The plan is always the, the vehicle for transporting us from point A to point B. For example, the vehicle of our justification is faith. Faith is the vehicle. That's the instrument that God uses to transfer the righteousness of Christ to you. Now... Maybe you don't know this, but faith does not save you. Faith is not the thing that saves you. The thing that saves you is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it's faith that's God's means of getting the righteousness of Christ to you. And so we can say then, nobody is ever saved without faith. And similarly, the preaching of the gospel is a means. Now we know what God could do, save everybody like that with the snap of his fingers. Never have to use the gospel at all. But the gospel is God's means. And so we can say this. Nobody is ever going to be saved without the preaching of the gospel. And so we witness because the elect have to hear the gospel. They're never going to be saved without it. You see, election is not salvation. It's unto salvation. Salvation that has to be obtained. This is what we read in 2 Peter 1 verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Now that's an interesting statement because 
the same people that Peter writes to in 1 Peter, that he calls the elect of God, he says, they have to obtain faith. They're not saved because they're elect of God. They have to obtain faith. And the belief of the gospel is the means of God saving his chosen people. So we have to keep that in mind that God always uses vehicles to accomplish his purposes. Faith in the gospel, faith in the gospel themselves, there are just two of God's means. And prayer is also one of God's vehicles. See, God's, God's will in many areas is accomplished through prayer, and God's not going to do them without prayer. Now, God says, well, I'm going to do this if you pray, and then we pray and God accomplishes his will. We pray for sick people. And the Bible says the fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, so if we want a person healed, then I need to pray for that person. And if it's God's will, will to heal him, how does he do that? Well, he uses that prayer as the means of accomplishing that. So if you need someone to marry, well, you don't sit on that. You pray for it. Well, it's as simple as this. If you, if you sit on it and you don't ask God about it, you sit on your hands and do nothing, then you get nothing. Pray about it. And God uses the prayer to accomplish his will. Now, here's the thing about everything that I've told you in this area. I don't understand it. I don't understand how all of this works. I, I wish that I could explain to you how that God does what he does, how that God knows all contingencies, he knows how everything that happens touches something else that happens, and he knows how I, all that's going to work out, and he says, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and I'll do it anyway, and then he says, but I'm not going to do it unless you pray about it. You ask me to explain it, I don't know how to do it. I, I can't explain that. All I can do is tell you, this is what God says. He didn't, ask, he didn't say you have to understand all the reasons. And so, when I don't understand reasons, you know what I do? That's when I fall back on, it's just a command. God said to do it. And I have to fall back on the command when I don't really understand. Now, I know this. God wants his children to have good things. He wants his children to have what they need. But I also know that he wants us to ask for it. And then I know that he wants us to realize he's the one that gave it. And so if you don't have, it's probably because you didn't ask. That's the way things are. So these, this is very important, harmony with God's will. And how to get into harmony with God's will. You've got to know God's word. You've got to start there, stay in that. And then I, I can promise you that you'll come up with the right answers. Well, next time we'll come back to this, we'll, we'll talk more about the right way to pray. God wants you to know that. And there are several other things that we need to talk about in this area. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that we can come to you right now. And just as we've talked about tonight, that we can pray about things. And you want us to pray. And that you give us the things that we need in our lives. You save people. And you bless people. And you work with your people through prayer. And Lord, we just uh, ask you to make us people of prayer and realize that what a great privilege that it is that we can come to you and ask for the things that we need. Thank you, Lord, for the service that we've had tonight. We thank you for the great singing, the beautiful music that we've heard. Thank you for this dear brother and his family that have come to visit us today. And it's really been a pleasure for us to talk with them and see how the Lord's worked in their lives. Uh, I know that there are people that believe in prayer. And Lord, help us all to be that way, just to look to you for everything that we need. We give you the praise for it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.